now you are hearing the instructions that Peter is giving to your leaders. So, and Peter was aware the whole congregation would be hearing this. So he says to the elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. I can't help but think that as Peter said this, he was remembering the words that our Lord Jesus said to him after the resurrection. Remember, Peter went off fishing. <laughs> he was supposed to stay, they were supposed to stay in Jerusalem until they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But Peter goes off fishing with some of the other disciples, and they fish all night and don't get a thing, and they see this man on the shore in the morning, and I, I don't want to take your time. It's a great story. It's in John 21, if you want to uh, read that on your own. But as they were having breakfast together, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I do. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then twice more, Jesus asked Peter that question. And the second time he said, tend my sheep. And the third time he said to Peter, and Peter's getting really upset now that Jesus keeps asking this question. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And I believe Peter had this in mind as um, as he was saying to these elders, be shepherds of God's flock. I don't think Peter ever forgot that. I think he carried that on his heart all the rest of his life. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not greedy for money, not doing it for what you can get out of it, but eager to serve. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. The crown, the word there is stephanos, that is the, uh, that's the crown of leaves that was put on the winner's head. Someone who had won. If your name is Stephen or Steve or Stephanie, that a blessing has been spoken over you when you were given that name. It, it, you carry the name of the winner, the winner's crown. And, but you see, a crown made out of leaves, it's going to fade. It won't last. Nor will the athletic strength of our youth last. It will fade. But, Peter says, you will be given a crown that will not fade. When the, when the chief shepherd appears, and then he says, young men, or you who are younger, and scholars discuss, is this talking to biologically young men? Or is this talking to those who are newer Christians? Or maybe those who are less mature? Nobody would want to own up to that, probably. But um, young men, 
you know, as I, as I read that, and some of the newer translations translate it, those of you who are younger, in other words, it, it's not ruling the sisters out. They're, they're included in this also. But I, I, get a, I get a chuckle out of this, and I, and I enjoy seeing the young men in your midst. Even Justin and Matt are young men to me. And, uh, but John says, John speaks of the young men in his epistle, 1 John, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He goes on to talk about children and fathers, and then he says again, I write to you, young men, I'm saying this especially for the young men who are in here, and you might be an old coot like me, but you can still have a young man's heart. Because you, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So we're talking about young men with a warrior's heart here. And most young men have a warrior's heart. That's why their insurance premiums go down after they're married and have children. <laughs> because they suddenly realize they have responsibility more than just showing how fast they can go on the road. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older or your elders, depending on the translation you have. And the word, it's the exact same word as elders used earlier in the chapter. Um, so is this talking about leaders in the church or just those who've been Christians longer or those who are older? Um, all the above. And then Peter says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And the word he uses there for clothe is a um, unusual word. It's not used very often in the New Testament, but it is the word specifically, literally, put on the apron of a slave. And I can't help but think that Peter, in saying it, is remembering how Jesus took off his robe and girded himself to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them there in the upper room at the Last Supper. And Peter was one of those whose feet Jesus washed. And Peter argued. <laughs> Peter argued with Jesus about that. You're not going to wash my feet. Um, yeah, I'm sure Peter felt both joy and humility. But he says, all of you, Clothe yourselves, put on the apron of a servant with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. If you are holding your scripture in your hand, you are holding something quite unique here. This and the writings, other writings in the New Testament that we have about humility being a good thing, this is unique. Scholars have not found anything in the ancient writings of any culture 
in the world, let alone the Greek and Roman culture, that considered humility something meritorious, that considered humility something to strive for. It was something to be avoided. It was a dishonor. It was a disgrace. Humility was never seen as something noble until Jesus. So far, scholars have not found anything in any other writing that held it up as a virtue. But within 100 years of our Lord Jesus coming, the culture we find in the writings, the culture was beginning to change. And even in the non-Christian Roman, Greco-Roman culture, humility was starting to be seen as virtuous. This is long before Christianity had become the religion of the empire. This is long before Christianity was just more than a few pockets of believers here and there. But it was all our Lord Jesus, his life, and the message of his life was already transforming the culture. Because it was truth. Because it's beauty. This is one of the first writings that we know of in all history where humility is held up as an honor. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, because, and here Peter quotes from the Old Testament, and James in his letter gives the exact same quote, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is not just the humble. The word there is not just people who act humbly. This is also talking about the bag lady, the short little old bag lady on the corner, homeless, doesn't have anything. Who knows her name? The humble. Those whom the world looks on as not being of much value to anybody. Or the unborn child. The unwanted unborn child. Or someone in a faraway country. We get tired of hearing of all the disasters people that the world doesn't take note of. This is the humble. God gives grace to the humble. And some translations say God shows favor. In fact, the NIV in the 2011 revision says God shows favor. Yeah, it's, it is. That's, that's accurate. Both, both are good translations into English. Um, that's what the word. And Grace is one of those words in the New Testament that really carries the Hebrew meaning. The apostles were writing in Greek with a Hebrew accent. Kind of like folks around here who speak English with a Pennsylvania Dutch accent. I trust you know what I'm talking about. I said that to one dear sister, older sister, who I don't know if she's ever been out of the area. She didn't know what I was talking about. 
but those of us who've lived in many other places, most people in speaking English don't say, let the, key, let the car keys on the table. You know? Yeah. But anyway, that's our own English, the way we do English here in, uh, in Pennsylvania Dutch country. And the word grace here is being filled with its meaning from the Old Testament, which is also showing favor. In other words, God likes us. God likes us. I appreciate so much our worship this morning and communion, the whole service. Everything I was going to give in the message is was in the service already this morning. Um, but that is, I, I enjoy that. It reinforces what I'm bringing. Humble, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. God's mighty hand in the Old Testament was usually a way of talking about God's power to bless and protect and guide his people. And Peter is saying, humble yourselves, trusting in God's mighty hand. No matter what you are going through, trust him. Trust him. A part of humbling is submitting ourselves which Peter has already been giving a picture of what it means for leaders to humble themselves and for the younger in the congregation, the young men, to humble themselves through submission. Peter here says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, trusting God that he may lift you up in due time, and we're going to come back to that. That's a huge theme throughout this letter. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I like the way King James Version says it. Cast all of your care on him because he cares for you. Eight, verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Peter has said this before in this letter. Be self-controlled and alert. Be alert. Be on your guard. Keep awake. Watch out. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, Peter, as do we, uses the devil to refer to that whole demonic structure. I don't know if I have ever faced the devil personally in my life. I'm, I don't think I'm important enough that the devil is not God. The devil cannot be everywhere at once. He, so I don't think, I think there are more important people that the devil was working on than me. But we talk about the devil because it's that whole demonic structure of demons and devils. And boy, for the early church, when there weren't that many Christians, you know, the devils, as far as I, I don't see anything in the scripture that says the devils have multiplied since the time of the New Testament church. They're not being born. They, the number that they have, that's it. Um, there are a lot fewer Christians. They could concentrate their energies on a lot fewer places. Praise God. There are millions and millions, billions of us now. They have to thin down their work, but they still seem to be doing just fine in the efforts that they're doing. Yeah. 
But uh, the early church, they were really under pressure. The enemy was really trying to stomp them out, if at all possible. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Two images there. Actually, when a lion is prowling, it isn't usually roaring at the same time. But because it doesn't want to scare away the prey, the prowling is sneaking around quietly. And then usually, after the lion has captured its prey, then it will roar! Let everybody, let everything know, I have succeeded! You know, kind of like the wrestling match where the guy puts his foot on the other guy and, you know, conquered him. Yeah. Um, but it's scary to hear a lion roar. It's, it's, it can be a scary thing. However, it's a lot more dangerous when the lion is quiet, sneaking up on us. But both are true, and the enemy, the devil is prowling around. He's not waiting for us to club up. He's looking for someone to devour. And Peter says, verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him. Resist him. Fight back. James says the same thing in his letter. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Peter says, resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers, that is, the, our family of believers throughout the world, are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, Peter was writing this to churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, and they were suffering. We know, historically, they were suffering. For some reason, it seemed like the Roman government really persecuted Christians in that area severely. But um, when I hear about the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in other countries right now, boy, I, I've, I've got it good. I imagine we all have it really good. Can you imagine being a Christian in Egypt, in one of the areas where because you're Christian, your children are not, not allowed to go to school, you scavenge through the dump, trying to make ends meet. You can't get a good job. You can't provide for your children because you can't get a good job. And all you would have to do is renounce being a follower of Jesus. And all that would change. I think in some ways that would be harder than actually being tortured and dying to look into the eyes of your children and know what this is costing you as a family. That God is faithful. And brothers and sisters, the battles that we are waging here are on behalf of the whole body of Christ around the world. There is a significance beyond just ourselves. It was so powerful that we got to pray for Rachel this morning as she came as a tangible picture how we are a body of Christ around the world. We are interconnected. We do affect each other. Verse 10. And the God 
of all grace. The God of all grace. In other words, all grace is from God. God is so much full of this grace, this favor, that we can think of it really as like a name of God. The God of all grace. Who called you? Who called you? Who called you? Who called you? He looked at all the world and he wanted you. He he wants you. He wants you. There probably someone here this morning who really needs to hear that. God wants There's probably someone here this morning who wrestles with what I've wrestled with all of my life, more so when I was a bit younger, and that is not liking myself. There are probably folks here, men and women, boys and girls. There's probably someone here who wrestles with wishing you were something else, wishing you were smarter, wishing you were stronger, wishing you looked different. And you don't really like yourself. The book of Revelation tells us that each one of us exists because God wants us. In all the other people, in all of history, in all of the world, for whatever reason, God, who is all loving and all wise and all good, wanted you. He wanted you. Now it's up you and and for the rest of us we can join in finding out and celebrating why you're so special why you are so special to God I remember I remember and, and this was a real turning point for me the I remember I don't can't tell the day on the calendar but when the Lord the Lord let me have a glimpse of his face. Um, and I couldn't say what he looked like, but I just was aware. I was looking into the eyes of God. And I saw how sad he was. That I didn't like what he had made me to be. Because when he made you, when he made me, he, in all of his wisdom, thought he was doing something good. He was giving the world something good. And he was giving you something good by making you, you. And I didn't like the gift he'd given me. Parents, can you imagine, you know, those times when you've worked really hard to get a really neat gift for your kids at Christmas? And they open it up and they don't like it. Hmm. How much more? I got to see the sadness in God's eyes. The sadness that I didn't like. The gift he had given me. 
ask him to forgive me. <laughs> I'll leave it between you and Father to talk about whether you like the gift that he's given you or not. But God has called you. He loves you, he wants you, and he's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So a Greek there can be in union with Christ, or it can be by means of Christ, be instrumental. Paul really uses it, this is Peter, Paul really uses it in the sense, um, it almost becomes a technical term with Paul, talking about our union with Christ, that we are now through Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice and our willingness to receive him, he fills us with his own presence. Both Romans and Galatians talk about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. Jesus comes to live within us through the Holy Spirit. And there's this sacred union, this precious union for all eternity. Um, Paul talks about this at more length in Romans chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Colossians chapter 2 and 3, if you want to look at it more. There are many other places, but those are really big discussions. And I personally think that Peter's talking about that here. Has called you, has called you to his eternal, forever glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> and the passages Justin was sharing with us as we came to communion, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast to him, verse 11, to him be the power forever and ever Amen. Kind of picks up on what uh, Peter wrote earlier in chapter 4, to him be the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's going to be by his power. Not by ours. That's okay. It's going to be by his power. He's going to make sure it happens. He's going to bring it about. He's going to guarantee it. After we've suffered a little while. Friends, there's two things you're not going to be able to do in heaven. I've only thought of two. If you know of others, I'd be interested in hearing others. But there's two things you will not be able to do in heaven that you can do right now. And uh, you're not going to be able to bring someone else to Jesus. Because everybody there is already going to know him. <laughs> You're going to have the opportunity to help somebody come to Jesus. You've got to do it now. And you're not going to be able to grow through what you suffer. Because you won't be suffering. And that is a very precious opportunity right now. I'm not wanting suffering. I don't like suffering. I think that 
our brothers and sisters in the Middle Ages who thought that it was meritorious to whip themselves with whips. That's weird. Um, yeah. No, I, we don't need to. We don't need to bring on suffering. It will come. In this current world, it will come. And I'm sure many of you are suffering. It may be relationships. It may be physical pain. There may be people here who have physical distress and ailments and pain. Or a broken relationship with someone you love. Or difficult situations at work. Or with a neighbor. Heaven help you if you're in a feud with a neighbor. Or anxiety. Maybe it's mental, a mental torment. No, that's real. That's real pain. That's real pain. Or something else. I set off the fire alarm already. Okay. Brothers and sisters, the question to ask God is not why do I have to go through this? What, Father, what do you want me to learn from this? How do you want me to respond to it? Unfortunately, going through the pain, suffering, is not enough to bring the benefit. We have to react to it properly. We have to respond to it. And that will develop us. That will help us to grow. That will make us better instead of bitter. It's essential. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't want to get to heaven and discover we could have grown more if only we had quit resisting, had just had quit grousing and complaining about it and spending our life trying to get away from suffering. That, by the way, is not Christianity. That's Buddhism. But walked with God through it, submitted to God. I'm not saying bring on the suffering, but when you're in the suffering, whatever it is, seeking God, trusting God, submitting to God. And Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. There are three things I would like to leave us with in closing. Um, so I guess worship team, that's, that's about as close I'm going to get for you. But um, I believe there are three things especially that the Lord would like to bring to Cornerstone this morning. Now, I think there are many things the Lord's been ministering that I don't even fully understand. But I want to pick up on those three words, and, and Justin did in communion. Suffering, humility, and glory. I am excited, as Justin shared with me some of the documents in your, um, in your handbook, and I'm excited as I look at those. Um, um, let's see here. The, uh, yeah, the Cornerstone Ministry Lebanon Handbook. Um, You know your tagline? You got a neat tagline. Anybody, anybody here can say it? Not you, Justin. Yes, 
in Christ, in community, in Lebanon. Woo! That is so cool. And I pray that over you. I bless you with that. And I hope you embrace it. And I hope you are prepared to go for it. Because I believe that is why God has called you. You are not the only part of the body of Christ in Lebanon. But you are an important part of the body of Christ in Lebanon. And I believe the Lord wants to use Cornerstone in a mighty way. After we came back from California, and believe me, there's a lot of darkness in California. Um, There are also a lot of people who love the Lord there. A lot of good work going on there. But um, when we came back, and I'd been in Lebanon before, but I just sensed, and I lived in Lancaster City, but I just sensed the heaviness, the darkness over Lebanon. And um, and it wasn't just once. I'm not speaking a curse. I just I just sense that in the spirit. And I've shared that with a number of people, and others have sensed that also. And now I did. I confess I shared it with Tom Keller a few weeks ago, and Tom said he was not sensing that. I personally think it's because he's just so excited, you know, and looking to the Lord. But nevertheless. Regardless of what you think of my, what I was sensing there, we know Satan hates this place. We know Satan wants to destroy it. The Bible is full of teaching and exhortation. Peter gives it to us right here about the spiritual war that we are in. We are in a warfare. We can be sitting comfortably in this chair, the chairs in this nice, comfortable room, this attractive worship space. We're still in a war. The bombs are going off. They're exploding all around us. And we don't like it. We know the Bible says that. And we affirm it with our minds. But we don't. I don't like to think about that all the time. Once in a while. but Now, we're in the war all the time. We're in a war. In this current world, until Jesus comes back, we are in a war. So let's face it. Let's own up to it. And let's go for it. And there's a battle going on for Lebanon. And you have taken your stand, young men. You have placed yourself here and you've said, we are in Christ, we are in community, and we are in Lebanon. And we are not backing off. Jesus is King. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And we are going to see the captive set free. We're going to see the sick healed. We're going to see the hungry fed. We're going to see the downtrodden lifted up. We're going to see good news preached to everyone. Yes. That's your amen. And that's who you're called to be. And you can do it. Along with the rest of the body of Christ in this community. And I personally believe that there's two big strategies. I lay this before you. I lay it before your leaders. One is, I think God wants to use beauty. Beauty. To break through in Lebanon. And as I came into this worship space, and I'm just, I know that you have deep in your DNA here at Cornerstone, the arts, here we pray for Rachel, her interest in the arts, 
my background is in art. My wife and I met in art class. Um, my medium is human lives now. <laughs> As a pastor. But I look at the, the colors here. Just, oh, it's exciting. And the positive and negative spaces and the line quality here. I just, yeah. It's not, it's not, I really do not believe it's a coincidence that God has given Cornerstone such an interest in the arts. And I personally believe God is planning to use beauty in this battle for Lebanon. And secondly, I believe a major strategy is coming against racism, coming against the divides in our culture, between what we call races, that's a human construct. It has no basis in anything we can find in, in, gen in genetic research. But um, it's a human construct we've made. Divisions along the line of culture, divisions along the line of socioeconomic class. See Peter Wagner, who's now going to be with the Lord, but I have a high respect for him. He talked about how in every area there are controlling, there's a controlling demonic spirit. And if you want to really deal a blow to the demonic forces in an area, you need to bind the strong man. Jesus said, unless you bind the strong man, you won't be able to plunder his house. And C. Peter Wagner believed, I heard him say this in Lancaster years ago, that the demonic strongman over our nation was racism. That every other demonic thing going on in our nation was drawing its energy from that. Racism, the using and abusing of people for my own personal pleasure or benefit, not respecting them as persons created in the image of the living God. And that abortion and homosexuality and everything in our culture is drawing its energy from that racism that is so deep in our culture. Folks, that is going to be a major battle line here in Lebanon to free the captives. Beauty standing against racism. And I believe you have a calling as a congregation to do that, along with the rest of the body of Christ, if you have an important part. Well, I have shared enough for this morning. Thank you, worship team, and God bless you, brothers and sisters. It's a privilege.